trust is earned. There are some people today who adopt that kind of slightly suspicious, certainly guarded attitude when a person asks them to just trust. Many examples of this in our culture. One would be the popular TV show House MD, when the medical doctor House announces at the beginning of that series that his philosophy is everybody lies. While this, like the uh, equally suspicious saying, trust no one, is theoretically self-refuting. After all, if everybody lies and you can trust no one, then presumably you cannot trust either of those statements either. But in practice, it functions as a, a guarded, cautious attitude for many of us today. So little that we feel we can trust. Other people, though, embrace a different philosophy. They, they no doubt feel that uh, they have a less wary approach to life, and so instead they say with more openness, well, I'm going to grant my trust. They believe, I suspect, that we must first offer trust as a show of good faith in order for people to return that same trust. And then there are those who think that trust is both earned and granted, <laughs> Uh, there is a well-known Russian proverb that roughly translates as trust, but verify. And uh, in the religious realm, there are similar sayings. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, the uh, English Civil War leader, once advised his military troops, trust in God and keep your powder dry, the powder being the gunpowder. So it's a kind of, you know, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition sort of advice. So is trust, in fact, earned, or is it granted, or is it somehow you know, a combination of the two. In fact, the way we answer that uh, question, uh, that riddle, may well influence even our personal destiny. The great scientist Albert Einstein once said this, the most important decision we make is whether we believe we live in a friendly universe or a hostile universe. Indeed, perhaps entire political, military, business, even religious strategies diverge from this choice. Do we act as pragmatic realists, realpolitik, even Machiavellian, or do we trust the good in others? Do we construct an economy on the theory that people are basically selfish, or that people are basically communitarian? Do we preach to people as sinners needing salvation or innocent victims needing affirmation? In short, uh, do we grant trust or do we insist that trust must be earned? Well, the passage we're looking at this morning shows us the answer is the faithfulness of God to His Word. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. You'll find it on page 940 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And it reads like this. Let me read it for us. Then what advantage has the Jew? We're picking up Paul's uh, argument, his conversation, uh, his discussion with the Romans, this letter. And it carries on like this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Well, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words 
and prevail when you are judged. Now, what's going on here, I think, is that Paul is now recalling a sort of fiery question and answer session that he often had in the synagogue when he taught, as he'd just written in this letter, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, in the previous verse, chapter 2, verse 29. So the question immediately came, he found, well, why be physically circumcised if the real point of circumcision is just spiritual? That's a natural enough question, though Paul had already addressed the potential misunderstanding when he taught that circumcision indeed is of value, chapter 2, verse 25, but only if the sign of circumcision leads to that which it is to signify, namely holiness, namely Jesus. Only then. So he already addressed it, but still, as Paul preached in the synagogue, he found that the spiritual nature of circumcision that he preached raised these kind of questions. Perhaps he's even here recording a kind of ancient, sort of lively question and answer session after a service, a sort of Q&A. In fact, the passage, you see, is structured around two dramatic and direct sets of questions and answers, the second building upon Paul's answer to the first. The first set of questions is verses 1 to 2, and they ask, what is the advantage of being a Jew and experiencing the Jewish religious ceremony of circumcision? What's the point of that, Paul? And Paul says, well, the benefit is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then following on from that, the second set of questions, verses 3 to 4, And they ask, well, okay, so what about human faithlessness to the Bible? Doesn't that undermine the advantage of having a Bible? Well, Paul then counters, no, because God is demonstrably justified his faithfulness to the Bible. His faithfulness overrides human faithlessness. So the main proposition this morning is the following. Treasure the sacred trust of the Bible because... God is faithful even when people are not. Treasure the sacred trust of the Bible because God is faithful even when people are not. Let's look at it then. First, the sacred trust of the Bible. Second, the faithfulness of God. First, the sacred trust of the Bible. Verses 1 and 2, he's responding to the objection that Paul had many times met when preaching in the synagogues, that his view of Jesus meant there was no advantage to being a Jew. And he replies that the great supreme advantage of belonging to God's people was the sacred trust of the oracles of God. Now listen, as we hear then, Paul 1 fairly recounts this fiery objection from the audience. And then 2, Paul reply to the heckler with a zinger of a response. One, Paul fairly recounts the fiery objection. This is verse 1. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? The, The person asks Paul. The objection is that if circumcision is only a sign, if being a Jew is really a matter of the heart by the Spirit, as Paul has said, what then is the benefit of being a Jew at all? I mean, you can imagine it, can't you? There's the Jewish convert. He's like, you mean, Paul, I went through the whole hassle of being circumcised for nothing? If the reality is a matter of the heart, they question Paul. And if uncircumcised Gentiles can have this matter of the heart by the Spirit, what then is the profit of a Jewish heritage? Now look, Christian teacher, author, evangelist, Sunday school teacher, children's worker, be encouraged. 
If people question so the preaching of the great apostle Paul, they will surely question your words too. Expect it. I'll be ready to respond, but keep going anyway. One, the objection. An encouragement for the faithful evangelist, Bible school teacher, etc., to keep going, despite even this kind of interrogation. Two, Paul's zinger of a reply. Look at verse 2. To begin with, he he responds, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And you've got to understand that this is not only a quick-witted response in the heat of the moment, it, it stunningly reveals the most important aspect of belonging to God's people. Let me show how this is a home run of a reply in a Q&A session. See, Paul's opening phrase, to begin with, appears to be one of Paul's characteristic ways of stressing emphasis. In fact, he used exactly the same to begin with expression in chapter 1, verse 8. And there, as here, he follows without an expected second Third, fourth. So when someone says to begin with, you expect them to say, well, next, and then third, and then fourth. But he doesn't. Just to begin with. It's his style. It it may not be grammatically correct, but Paul apparently uses it as a sort of verbal highlight. It's it's a bit like he's saying, you know, here, to begin with, I'm not even going to mention anything else afterwards because the thing I start with is so important, nothing else is worth mentioning afterwards. So, to begin with, or most important of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted, that is, they were stewards or guardians of a holy precious deposit. In particular, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, that is, the actual words of God. See, the term oracles was uh, used of the spoken utterances of pagan religious figures in the ancient world who, who gave oracles. They, they claimed that they were speaking the actual words of those, their so-called gods. And so Paul uses this term. He's, he's saying that the actual spoken oracles of God were truly given to the Jews. Now, will you notice, my friends, just how high a view this is of the Old Testament? The Old Testament scriptures are, Paul's saying, the very words of God. The Bible is not merely true concepts about God. It does not only contain ideas related to God. The scriptures are the words of God. Now, there were human authors... But the result of the mysterious process of divine inspiration is that, Paul was saying, we have in our hands, as the Jews had entrusted to them, the very words of God. The oracles of the living God. What he had spoken. So there's the situation. There's a Q&A. Someone says, well, what's the point of being a Jew then, Paul? And Paul says, I'll tell you what's the point of being a Jew. To begin with, they have the Bible. That is, they're given the very words of God. Most of all, most important of all. And after that, nothing worth mentioning. It's an astonishing statement. Of all the great privileges of the Jewish nation, the supreme 
premier privilege is that they were entrusted with the Scriptures. The Bible is of greater importance than the crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus from Egypt, Daniel and the lion's den, and all the rest. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. God spoke to them. Let me try and give you an illustration of just how big a deal this is. I want you to imagine yourself invited to the next coronation of a British monarch. Not a stretch. I'm sure most of us will get an invitation, right? So there you are. And by ancient tradition, this is what always happens. The new ruler is handed a Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. It's part of the ceremony. They're handed a Bible. And as this is done, the following statement is intoned and repeated. This book is the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now, I want you to find a Bible. Can you find a Bible? Show me. Do you have a Bible? And you may not believe this, but I want to put it into your minds, at least as a possibility. I want you to find your, look at your neighbor. You may be married to them or you may not. doesn't matter. (laughs) And I want you to show, pass them your Bible. Look at them. Pass them your Bible. And I want you to repeat after me. We are going to crown everyone here. (laughs) We'll be the most royal congregation in America. See if I can get the actual saying right. I've never been to a coronation myself, so. Okay, I'll say it. I want you to repeat and pass, show it to your neighbor. This book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. This book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. You're all crowned. See, here, here's how it works. Someone here is uh, wondering what's the uh, advantage of having grown up in a Christian home. Uh, perhaps they wish they had a more dramatic had had a more dramatic conversion, you are entrusted with the very words of God. How's that about that for starters? The sacred trust of the Bible. Second, the faithfulness of God. Look down with me at verses 3 to 4 as this Q&A session picks up Picks up speed. He's uh, answering the objection that some who know the Bible don't follow it. He replies that God's faithfulness overrides human faithlessness. So it picks up speed. Paul here is diplomatically repeating the objection. And then he's uh, brilliantly demonstrating God's faithfulness, nonetheless thoroughly justified. Thoroughly demonstrated. 
Let me show us this. One, Paul diplomatically recounts the objection that human faithfulness is somewhat apparent. So you can almost imagine someone says, oh, there are all these people who criticize it. There's all this, in our context, all this higher criticism. All these people are saying there's this manuscript discovered, and then it's discovered that it's not actually discovered. You know the kind of thing. There's human faithlessness. And he repeats back the question, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, when you see how tactful Paul is being, he's indicating that some were unfaithful. Though, to be accurate, many of his own people had rejected the Messiah, hadn't they? Paul is diplomatic. He wants to become all things to all people to win them. We we misunderstand Paul when we think of him as a sort of boorish, in-your-face communicator. Not at all. He wasn't constantly shoving the truth down the ears of his unwilling audience. No. He appreciates the difference between being valiant for truth and being vapidly rude. Hmm. And so today, we may also be diplomatic. Some have criticized the Bible. We don't have to repeat every 19th century critic. We don't have to talk about every faithlessness that we are, of which we are aware. Some. Well, the question comes back. Well, okay, Paul, if granted, then you grant that at least some have been unfaithful. <laughs> the question oppresses him. Does this not then undermine your whole case? If the great thing about being a part of God's people is the Bible, and if God's people, at least some, are faithless to the Bible, does that not then undermine the value of having the Bible? Well, it's a question with massive contemporary um, relevance, isn't it? Why do churches like College Church and other churches that believe the Bible and preach the Bible and have it at the heart of what they're doing, why keep on doing that when we all know there are people who have criticized it? Well, Paul's diplomatic. He repeats the objection that human faithlessness is at least somewhat apparent. Two, then Paul brilliantly demonstrates that God's faithfulness is nonetheless thoroughly justified. Look at verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And the more I thought about this verse, the more practical. It may surprise you when you first read it. You think, well, what's Paul saying? It's actually deeply practical. Let me explain. By no means is another of Paul's characteristic phrases. It's the first time it appears in Romans. It will appear a number of other times. In fact, just a couple of verses further down the page. Literally, the phrase is, may it not be. But when Paul uses it, it denotes a kind of passionate fervor. It's Paul's way of saying, you have got to be kidding. No way. Friends, let us be passionate with our convictions. Does the criticism of the Bible undermine God's faithfulness? You have got to be kidding? No way! And then having unleashed both barrels of his passionate conviction with a fervent denial, Paul then combines passion with reason So friends, let us also be logical if we wish to have a lasting impact in today's culture. 
And so Paul gives two rationales why God's faithfulness is nonetheless thoroughly justified. They are A, a visionary principle of courage, B, a famous example of mercy. The visionary principle of courage is let God be true though everyone were a liar. Here is how I think it works. In classical laws of thought, the law of identity means in simple terms what something is, it is. What something is, it is. It's a sort of logical principle. Here Paul is giving a theological logical principle. That is, Paul reasons, given who God is as God, then what he says is true, whatever anyone else says. So imagine it like this. Imagine every single human says the Bible is wrong. Not, not true by any instance, but just imagine it were the case. See the great crowd of people sort of marching by college church afterwards, you know, line upon line, millions upon millions, population of China again and again, you know, filing past one after another saying it's not true. Would that make the Bible untrue? No. Why? Because God is still God even if every person denies it. Look at it like this. Say you need brain surgery. I hope you never do, but say you do. Whose opinion would you trust? That of every single unqualified taxi driver who picks you up after you fly in at the airport? Or the eminent brain surgeon? Which would be right? Perhaps the taxi driver would be the eminent brain surgeon who's looking for a job. I don't know. But If every single person in the world, erudite and ignorant, all denied the Bible, not the case, but just say it were, it's a thought experiment, let God be true and everyone else a liar, say it were, God is still true and they lie. Because of who God is. See, our, our much prized democracy and government is a precious freedom, of course, which people have given their lives for. But it can make us think wrongly about truth. Truth is not a popularity contest. For the truth of God is not determined by how many votes he receives. Why? For God is true even if everyone else is a liar. Here's why this is important. One day you may perhaps even find yourself with people, powerful people, perhaps some, some people, disagreeing with you personally. The Bible is the sacred trust of the holy oracles of God. I want you to decide now to outweigh variable human opinions. I've been alive for long enough to know that they do change with fashion, even in universities. <laughs> Outweigh variable human opinions by the eternal substance of the truth of God. This is his visionary principle of courage. It's the secret of boldness about the Bible. And then he gives uh, his other rationale as a famous example of mercy, which is David. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 in the Old Testament is the most amazing confession of the most unexpected sinner in the whole Bible. Great King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And then he confessed, that's Psalm 51. 
So Paul is saying, consider that famous example of faithlessness. Did it contradict God's faithfulness? No. And so he quotes, David's confession actually revealed God's purpose. That you, he's quoting from Psalm 51, you, meaning God, may be justified in your words, referring back to the oracles of God, which he's trying to help them see will be true, whatever anyone else says, that you, meaning God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you, meaning God, are judged. Here's his reasoning. See, in classical laws of thought, the law of non-contradiction means, in simple terms, that contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense at the same time. In, In other words, here, the promise of God to David could not be contradicted. David's confession actually demonstrated that God's faithfulness was thoroughly justified. That is, that God's honor was verified. His mercy, his grace to restore David, even after that, showed God's faithfulness to his promise. Paul's saying even the greatest faithlessness could not contradict God's faithfulness to his word. No way, never, by no means. My dear friend, if David's sin could not contradict the eternal purpose of God's word, then neither can ours. So treasure the sacred trust of the Bible because God is faithful to it even when people are not. It's not only a case of trust, but verify or trust in God and keep your powder dry. Praise God, pass the ammunition. It's practical in some contexts as all that may be. It goes back not merely to how we view the universe as friendly or not. No, it's about our treasuring the sacred trust of the Bible because of who God is. God is faithful to his word even when people are faithless. And therefore we treasure the sacred trust of the Bible with confidence, courage, as well as love and joy. Paul gave here one famous example of mercy to illustrate God's faithfulness. There are many other examples of God's faithfulness to his word. Robert Germain Thomas, the first missionary to Korea, threw copies of the Bible from his ship to the Korean shore. He threw them out. He was killed in in an event a little bit later. Years afterward, those Bibles, some secretly kept, some secretly read, led to national revivals. In fact, a local Korean who took pages from some of the Bibles, those Bibles, to wallpaper his house. When that was discovered by the Christian community in the 1900s, people came from far and wide to read the words on his wallpaper. And a church was established in the locality. God is faithful to his word, even when people are not. 
the year that 18th century atheist Voltaire declared, 50 years from now the world will hear no more about the Bible. That year, the British Museum purchased a copy of the Greek New Testament for half a million dollars, while first editions of Voltaire were selling for eight cents a copy. And the predicted 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society was printing Bibles in the house where Voltaire had lived. God is faithful even when people are not faithful to his word. A couple of hundred years ago, Thomas Paine criticized the Bible. He said about his writing that when he had finished, there would not be five Bibles left in America. Today, the Bible is the best-selling book in the world. Times recently reporting a certain novel is the fastest-selling in history. 372,000 copies on its first weekend received a letter correcting. That may be so for fiction, the person who wrote the letter said, but I was working as a management trainee at the University Press, Oxford, when a new version of the Bible was published. A million copies were printed globally, and it was out of stock by 10 in the morning that day. Despite all human lies, God is true and justifies the truth of His Word. In fact, uh, the old French Christians called the Huguenots had it right. They had a picture of the Bible as an anvil surrounded by blacksmiths pounding on it, and underneath they had put these words, underneath were written these words, the more they pound and the more they shout, the more they wear their hammers out. Some even pounded on the incarnate word. They crucified him. He rose again. For though the grass withers and the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word incarnate. We thank you for coming to die for us, rising again as we remember as we now come to your table. Pray as we see this visible word, the cup and the bread, that you would enliven our hearts with courage, that you are faithful to your word even when people are not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.